0: Why would you try to feed your tumor to a snapping turtle? David Sedaris will explore this and other pressing issues when he joins us to talk about his latest book, Calypso. How is America's justice system failing the mentally ill? Elisa Roth will be here to talk about her book, Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. David Sedaris joins us now to talk about his new collection, Calypso. David, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me back, Pamela. So
0: you are at the very end of a book tour.
1: A lecture tour.
0: A lecture tour. What's the difference between a book tour and a lecture tour?
1: A lecture tour, I read in theaters and people buy tickets and... When we're on a book tour, generally, you read for, I don't know, 20 minutes. People are standing up, and they're not comfortable. But on a lecture tour, they're in a theater, and they have comfortable seats, and so you carry on for an hour and a half. You know, you read for an hour, and then and then I always have some nonsense. It takes up like 10, 15 minutes, and then I answer questions for a while.
0: Well, having seen you on this lecture tour, I think, at the beginning, I, I have to say I like that nonsense, that last 15 minutes. Does that rotate? Do you change that as you go along? It the feels nonsense spontaneous.
1: changes. I always write down at the end of every show what I read, how many people were in the audience, and how long it took me to sign books. And at the end of every tour, I write down my tour shtick, what that nonsense became after 40 cities. It generally gets honed.
0: I mean, how long do you sign books for? Because there's quite a line and you're not shuffling people along. I'm, it almost feels like it, it's part of the whole show, that that signing.
1: On a book tour, my record is 10 and a half hours. Of
0: signing, signing books. books. Wow. That's not the
1: reading. That's just sitting down. But I think people will only do that once. You know, they'll only stand in line for 10 and a half hours once. On a and then they're tour, like, I've done that. I don't yeah. need to do that again. On a lecture tour, it's usually between three and four hours.
0: Wow. And you, you gather stories, too, sometimes from the people Yeah. online. Did you get anything good this, this year?
1: <laughs> I met a woman uh, a couple nights ago, and she said, my daughter's been horrible to me, is being horrible to me, and I want you to write something in my book so that after I die, she'll find it and feel bad. So I want you to write, like, dear Marianne, I'm sorry, Brenda's being so awful to you. <laughs> And I said, eh. I said, is she an only child? And she said, yes. So I wrote in her book, Dear Marianne, I was so touched by the story of the infant son you put up for adoption all those years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you mess somebody up. right? Her life. Yeah. Okay. I, I like that. It's a good length of time to have an interaction with somebody. Sometimes people have something they want to tell you. But that's usually... Not terribly interesting. It's just something that they've been standing in line practicing. And I like to get beyond that and then see what else they've got. I met this guy a couple of weeks ago signing books, and I said, What do you do? And he said, I'm kind of trying to figure that out. I said, You should be an outlaw. And he said, I just got out of prison for t- after <laughs> two years for reckless endangerment and selling drugs. That's pretty bad. I mean, if, if you look like you're in prison,
0: right? <laughs> wow. And did he?
1: I mean, you
0: just thought that
1: that's... If I had to pick one person out of the line who would... (laughs) Just got out of prison. I would have gone right to him.
0: All right. I won't ask you what he looked like. We won't go there. There's a line at the beginning of one of your essays in this new collection, Calypso, that starts with, every time you come to America, it's always something. Like there's always something going on, whether it's SARS or, you know, some kind of crazy scare. And you only come here, right, twice a year Mm -hmm. at this point. So when was the last time you were here? And what does it seem like to you now, having been away?
1: Well, like usually I'm here for election season. You know, well, election season lasts for years now, but like I was, I usually come every October and I'm here for a couple of months and every spring and I'm here for a couple of months. And like I said, it is always, always something. Well, especially now with Donald Trump as president. Is that the something? something. He's been the something, you know, since before he was elected, really. But the mood feels slightly different every time I come to the United States.
0: How did it feel this time?
1: Resigned, hmm. you know, Just people like really beaten down, and they just don't even. It's just too depressing for them to read the newspaper.
0: Don't so. say that. This is we are in in the offices of a newspaper. That's like the one thing that you cannot <laughs> right. say on this podcast, <laughs> right. Mr. Sedaris. You have, I mean, you're actually in this collection, talk about politics a little bit. And you don't often do that in your essays. sort of go directly. At politics.
1: No, I think partly because I don't feel like I'm an original thinker that way. I know people who are. My friend, Sarah Vowell, always anxious to hear what she thinks about something because it's nothing I've heard before. And also, I I find it really can date a book, an essay collection. But this seems so big and just in the way that it interrupted my family life, I thought that I had to— talk about a little at least a little bit, you know. Just how it's how it sets my father apart from his children. Because your father was a Trump supporter. Yes. What's that like? Well you know what's interesting? My dad used to say the guy who's articulate, the guy who can put a sentence together, now that's the guy who's gonna lead. And then it was George Bush and I said, How what was that you said about articulate? Mm-hmm. Well he's good enough and then same with Trump. Well, he's good enough. So the rules change.
0: Is it a conversation stopper in your family?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. My father is so old. My, my father is 95. Wow. And so every time you see him it could be the last time you see him. And so you don't want that to be a fight. So it's just something that we don't talk about now. And so it means our conversations are, how the hell are you? Right. I'm good. How's your health?
0: Great. Actually, you just touched on the themes of the book, which are mortality, health, getting older, death. Was that conscious when you put this together? That, or did, did was it just, this is actually what I'm thinking about?
1: No, I've never sat down and I've never thought, well, I'm writing a book now. I've never, it just sort of becomes a book. But I turned this in in February and then, I, late February, and then I started new things, right? And then one was about a crack tooth that I had and mm-hmm. one was about oh, a firing range I went to with my older sister
0: oh my god you have to tell us a little bit about that firing range because that's a great
1: story I was with my sister and an older sister in North Carolina and we saw a uh, billboard for a firing range and she said we need to go there and shoot guns <laughs> so we did so we went and we had to take a safety course and it's a story that I started in 2012 mm-hmm. and I just couldn't get it to work and I pulled it out in 2015 and I couldn't get it to work But events sort of wrote the ending to the story, right? The shootings in Parkland, Florida Mm
2: -hmm.
1: allowed me to, to find an ending for that story and talking to my sister Lisa about it and her talking about the active shooter drills they were having at the school that she used to teach at. Oh, and then I wrote a story about pornography, about finding. I seem to find an awful lot of pornography just out in the world,
0: like on the ground with the, with the garbage or? On
1: the ground. I mean, as a child, that was the only way to get it. You mm-hmm. had to find it. So that was more like active searching. But now it's just. It just comes to you. It just comes to me. <laughs> <laughs> but so I don't know that those, we don't have think about a, a bad tooth and pornography and a firing range have anything in common, really. Maybe ultimately when they're, Placed, a, you know, with beside fifteen other essays, it'll make some kind of a sense. But I don't know. I don't look ahead that way.
0: But it's interesting. I, I was going to ask you about the process because it doesn't feel like something you just threw together. It does feel like you shaped it and you thought about the order of the essays. And how do you do that? And do things end up sort of on the cutting room floor, or do you gather up every scrap and?
1: There were its way essays, in? things that I wrote since the last book came out that I didn't include. Mm-hmm. They just didn't seem to fit. Like uh, a little monologue that I wrote for this company was getting people to write monologues that went along with different public artworks, and it's something that I read on tour for a while, and it worked well on tour. But I thought there's really not a place for it in the book. It would just everything would come to a screeching halt for it. It would just be, it would just be weird to stick it in a book. And then there's a, I write a lot of things that don't work out.
0: I get a sense. Certainly from reading your last collection, your diaries, Theft by Finding, that you are a very thoughtful editor of your own work, so that you are honing it and polishing it and sort of getting it into that kind of like Nitsuke-like small size for your collections. And I'm wondering if having just gone through editing your own diaries, if that changed the process of then working on this collection? Like, was it in that order? Did you do the diaries and then you
1: put together this essay collection? I did the diaries and then I put this together, but, well, like, on the tour that I was just on, it was sort of the the audience is, is telling me what to keep and what to let go of, Right. They're telling you very plainly, I can do a reading and then I can sign books for four hours and nobody will mention anything I read on stage. Mm-hmm. It's really very rare for anyone to mention anything that was read. But, you know, when people are coughing, that means, like, we're, we're not listening to you anymore. So I'll, I'll make note of that when I'm reading the story and, and then I'll I'll think, okay, well, that, what I have here is a block of information. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I need to disperse this in the story a bit here and a bit there because when I put it in a block people are losing interest or one thing I, I realize is if this happens anymore I think whenever you say anything that has to do with race in any way the audience stops there's, there's a line that I had in, a, in the essay about shooting and I was up, my sister Lisa saw a monkey at Starbucks a mm-hmm. woman had a monkey and, it, and she said it was dressed in a pink frilly dress the kind that Mexican babies wear and, and I would read that, and the audience would be like, wait a minute, is that, okay? is that okay? Can you say that? Like, is that is that racist? Is that... Whenever you mention a different race of people or a different nationality, people stop, and especially when you're writing humor, and they think, am I allowed to laugh at that? I think they're so uptight about everything now. So that's another
0: sort of thing, in addition to the people feeling resigned, maybe a kind of, like, underlying and nervousness.
1: You can just feel them snagging, getting snagged on that. So you think, okay, is that worth it in the story? Is it worth it snagging people there? Because they're just going to be there for, let's be snagged there for a few seconds, but they're still going to be there. So should I get rid of that and just have the story flow more? But then you think, well, why do I have to play into their, I don't know, I don't even know what you call it. You know, people often say after a show, like, oh, I can't believe the things you say. And it's like, what did I say? What are you, what are you even talking about?
0: Well, OK, this is something that you did say. Can I get you to read <laughs> a teeny bit? There are a couple of bits in here that I loved so much that I want to be a little bit choosy and see if you could read a couple things that I especially loved. Sure. Okay, yeah. So there was a scene in here very early on with your sister Gretchen. You were in the kitchen, I believe, in the middle of the night.
1: Okay. One of the stories I entered late concerned some pills my sister Gretchen had started taking a year and a half earlier. She didn't say what they were prescribed for, but they were causing her to walk and eat in her sleep. I saw this happen the previous Thanksgiving, which we spent together in a rental house in Hawaii. Dinner was served at seven o'clock, and at around midnight, an hour or so after she'd gone to bed, Gretchen drifted out of her room. Hugh and I looked up from our books and watched her enter the kitchen. There, she took the turkey out of the refrigerator and started twisting off meat with her fingers. Why don't you get a plate, I asked, and she looked at me, not scornfully, but blankly, as if it had been the wind talking. Then she reached into the carcass and yanked out some stuffing. This was picked at selectively, one crouton mysteriously favored over another until she decided she'd had enough, at which point she returned to her room, leaving the mess behind her. What was that about? I asked her the next morning. Gretchen's face adjusted itself for bad news. What was what about? I told her what had happened and she said, God damn it. I wondered why I woke up with brown stains on my pillow. According to the story I walked in on late, Thanksgiving had been a relatively good night for Gretchen. One morning, a few weeks after the turkey episode, she walked into her kitchen in North Carolina and found on the countertop an open jam jar with crumbs in it. At first she thought they were from a cookie, then she saw the overturned box and realized she had eaten one of the nutrition bars she breaks apart and feeds to her painted turtles. These bars are around four inches long and are made of dead flies pressed together the way Duraflame logs are. Not only that, she said, but when I was through, I ate all the petals off my (laughs) poinsettia. She shook her head. I noticed it on the counter next to the turtle food box, and it was just a naked stalk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I actually, I search through your books every time to find tidbits that are are sort of acceptable to read to my children. And that was that was uh, the first item that I came across in this book. But that's a real danger.
1: You know, if you're eating in your sleep, that's a real <laughs> danger. I mean, the, you, you've got to be very careful about what you keep in the house because. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe about like
0: what pills you take that cause you to eat in your sleep. Okay, so th- what's interesting, and this is why I think that your collections are, are actually very carefully arranged, is that you bring up two things in this essay that are going to become recurrent themes throughout the book, which is the feeding of turtles. I didn't – you know, it didn't occur to
1: me till I read that that I thought,
0: oh, right, turtles. So it's just it's just a magical art that you're not even in control of that just occurs spontaneously as you write. So tell us about the turtle because he seems pretty central to this book.
1: Well, in 2013, I got a house on the coast of North Carolina, and it's where my family used to vacation when we were children. And we used to go every summer, but it was really my mother who was responsible for that. And after she died, we stopped going. And a couple of years ago, I thought, well, I'll get a house on the coast, right? Because a lot of my family, live in North Carolina, and this way they can go there whenever they want. So I bought this house, and the houses there are all on stilts, and they're all made out of wood, and they all have beachy names, like uh, Crabba Dabba and Clamalot. And our house had a dumb name, so I changed it to the C-section. And then we just bought the house next to ours, and I'm going to call that either the Amniotic Shack or Canker Shores.
0: On uh, Staying on a theme. Excellent.
1: (laughs) I want to get a boat and call it Roe v. Wave. (laughs) But near our house, there's this freshwater canal that is loaded with turtles. And some of them are these painted turtles. And then there are massive snapping turtles. So I just started going and feeding them. You know, chicken necks and fish heads and hot dogs. And I'm just fascinated by these turtles. And then I had this... Tumor. It was a, uh, it was benign. It was a uh, uh, just a fatty tumor. Dogs get them all the time, and I'd been thinking. Oh. If you say that offhandedly, like dogs
0: get them all the time, as if like that somehow makes it feel less threatening.
1: Well, I went to a doctor in Paris, and I said, "What is this? It's like a devil egg under my skin," <laughs> and he said, "Oh, it's um you know, it's just a fatty tumor. Dogs get them all the time." <laughs> so I'm just repeating what the doctor said to me, but I'd been thinking. How if you had your tonsils out, right, your cat would be happy to eat your tonsils if you put them in her bowl. If you had your kidney removed, right, give it to an alligator. Happy to have it. I thought, you know what, I'm going to have this tumor removed I'm going to feed it to a turtle. So that's what I did.
0: And it was a very, like, it was the one turtle in particular that the tumor was intended for.
1: I don't know what it is about this canal, but... I've noticed that se- many of the snappy turtles are blind, and this one turtle in particular had a tumor on his head. It was almost like a top hat on his head. And he was the one, he was my favorite one, and so he was the one that I was going to feed the tumor to. I call him a he, it could have been a female, but but he died. So I fed it to a different one. I fed it to a turtle that I didn't really
0: know. Didn't have a personal relationship no. with. There's the mortality again. And also the politics because you mentioned in the book that when you are in North Carolina, I think the first time you're there as a family in the new house, like James Comey is staying a few doors down.
1: Yes, he just happened to be renting a house not far from us last summer. So that was one of the last essays that I wrote for the book. So there was great excitement up and down the coast because you hate – you hate for a famous person to be that close and to not see him. I mean, you must feel that all the time. You probably come into the office and people say, oh, you know, Madeleine Albright was just here. And you're like, God damn it.
0: <laughs> so did you have any, you didn't have any Comey
1: run-ins? No, no. I loved telling people that he was there, though. You know, just, it's just always fun to brighten people's day with news of a, You know, that there's a celebrity in their midst.
0: Right. But then, of course, it's a kind of mixed bag because if then they don't see that celebrity, then they feel like they were so close but lost out.
1: Yeah, but I bet a lot of them are like, you know what? I think I saw him on the beach. I think that was him in the water. I think people probably do that a lot. There's another part I would love you to read that also has a kind of political
0: bent, and it concerns air travel. Actually, before you read it, I mean, so many of your great stories are around airports and I imagine that's in part because you spend a lot of time in airports. But I don't know. What, what is it? Like, what do airports do to people? What does air travel do to people that brings all this out?
1: Well, I think you could separate the population into people who do travel a lot and people who don't travel a lot, Right. People who don't travel a lot say, I would never check my luggage. They'd lose all your luggage. Well, you know, I travel. All, it's all I do is travel. I've never lost my luggage permanently. I've never lost my luggage. Or when you see people boarding, you know, they have a seat at the back of the plane and they try to sneak their luggage, you know, in the overhead bin. It's so the much bad, the plane. bad behavior. Right, who are just bad people. Last night I flew here from Calgary next to a guy, and I was in first class, who, I mean, I thought... I didn't know you could pick your nose for four hours. <laughs> I thought you'd run out of material for a while. But uh, he didn't. And in first class,
0: too. Like, it, it didn't hold him back.
1: No. I saw a guy in first class once take his shoes off and his socks and clip his toenails <laughs> <laughs> in first class. But I, sometimes I feel bad because I have so much material that comes from being in planes and on airports. But th- that's where I am all the time, in planes and on airports. I just accepted a speaking engagement in Cambodia. And it's uh, an airline, I guess, is having their meeting there. And all they want from me is to hear stories of bad behavior on airplanes and in airports. Wow, that they they specifically ordered it up? Yep. That's amazing. That's
0: amazing. So you're going to collect
1: all your greatest hits from airports? Well, I have so many stories about it and then bits of stories. And then I've got in my diary, I've got, Massive amounts of material about.
0: You're gonna that that, that that could be in your next <laughs> in the collection. Airports. There was that great one, I think, from
1: uh, "Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls." That was it called "Your Trash," or oh, that flight attendants say. Yes, when they're when they're angry, they go down the aisle at the end of the flight and they say, "You're trash, you're trash, your family's trash." <laughs>
0: And what was great about that one, too, is that brings up another running theme that you go over, which is what people will put on T-shirts. Because I think that that was the same mm. essay that kind of starts off with your online. And what what did this person's T-shirt say?
1: Well, the worst T-shirt, okay, is 50,000 battered women a year. And I got to eat mine plain.
3: Oh,
0: God. <laughs> what did you see this trip? Anything, anything to rival that?
1: No, I mean, I, I always write them down when I see a good one. I love I was at a book signing and somebody I met a woman and her brother lives in Ghana. and there are a lot of people wear clothes from American relief organizations. and she saw a guy wearing a T-shirt that said, "This is what a dike looks like." <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. Okay. Let us segue then into this great part of your essay, I think, from the beginning of House Divided.
1: Because I'd accumulated so many miles, they bumped me to first class on the flight from Atlanta to Raleigh. I'd assumed that our plane would be on the small side, but instead, owing to Thanksgiving and the great number of travelers, it was full size. I was seated in the second row in front of a woman who looked to be in her early sixties and was letting her hair fade from dyed red to gray. After she settled in, she started a conversation with the fellow beside her. That's how I learned she lived in Costa Rica. It's on account of my husband, she said. He's military, well, retired military, though you never really leave the Marine Corps, do you? She started explaining what had taken her from North Carolina to Central America, but then the flight attendant came to take a drink order from the guy next to me, and I missed it. Just as I was tuning back in, a man across the aisle tried to open his overhead bin. It was stuck for some reason and he pounded on it, saying to anyone who would listen, this is like Obamacare, broken. Several of the passengers around me laughed, and I noted their faces, vowing that in the event of a crisis, I would not help lead them to an emergency exit. You people are on your own, I thought, (laughs) knowing that if anything bad did happen, it would likely be one of them who'd save me. It would just be my luck, I had passed judgment, so fate would force me to eat my words. After we took off from Atlanta, I pulled out my notebook, half making a list of things we'd need for Thanksgiving and half listening to the woman behind me who continued to talk throughout the entire trip. I guess she was drinking, though I could have been wrong. Perhaps she was always this loud and adamant. I never said I'd spend the rest of my life there. That's not what I meant at all. It was dark by the time we landed in Raleigh. And as we taxied to the gate, one of the flight attendants made an announcement. The remain seated until the fastened seatbelt sign has been turned off, part, was to be expected. But then she added that we had some very special passengers on board. <laughs> oh, no, I thought. <laughs> Please don't embarrass me. I was just wondering who the other important person might be, When she said, with us today is the outstanding soccer team from, she named a high school in the Triangle area, and concluded with, let's give them all a great big hand. The woman behind me whooped and cheered, and when no one joined her, she raised her voice shouting, you people are assholes. I mean, what the hell? You can't even applaud for your own teenagers? I'd meant to, but figured the team was back in coach. It wouldn't have heard me one way or the other, so what difference did it make? Pathetic, the woman spat, too wrapped up in your smartphones and iPads to congratulate a group of high school athletes. You couldn't say she hadn't nailed us. Still, I had to bite my hand to keep from laughing. It's so funny to be called an asshole by someone who doesn't know you, but then again knows you so perfectly.
0: I love like the rage in that bit, you know, like the rage with the overhead compartment and this woman's sort of mitigated fury. It's just, I mean, that I think maybe is, maybe that's what air travel brings out. It's like everything you're angry about.
1: Well, especially right around Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving before last, I flew from Los Angeles to Raleigh, and we're just about to board, and they, they call my name, and I go up there. And the flight attendant says, somebody wants to know if you'll swap seats with him. And I said, well, it depends. Where would I have to be? And they said, you would have the window seat in the bulkhead. And I said, no. <laughs> I, I don't like being in the bulkhead because you have to put all your things overhead. Oh, yeah, that's and, terrible. And if you don't board first, all that space is gone, right? So it turned out to be a man who had wanted to sit. It was in first class, wanted to sit with his kids, right? Two kids, and then he would be across the aisle. And And I said, no. Right, And so he was furious with me that I wouldn't do that. But we take off, and the flight attendant comes to me, and she taps in, and she said, Sir, is it okay if I give the children a hot towel? And I said, Sure. (laughs) Then I realized she thought they were my kids. (laughs) Sure, hotter the better.
0: (laughs) This collection also, I think, is the first one, really, where you write about your sister, Tiffany, at her her death, and very sort of openly, was that hard to do?
1: Well, she committed suicide in 2013. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I've met so many people who have had a sibling commit suicide since mm-hmm. I wrote that essay. It was in the New Yorker, and I've heard from so many people, and and I'm really glad to hear from them. And our, the stories are kind of similar. You know, usually there's this popular belief that, you know, you might break up with your boyfriend or your husband might divorce you or you lose all your money and then you commit suicide. But usually people who commit suicide have something else going on, you know. You know, they're mentally ill in some way. Right. And, and my sister was. My boyfriend Hugh was saying a while ago, well, like, well, if we had brought Tiffany to France you know, then she could have cleared her head and it's like, no, she, you know, she wouldn't even have gotten on the plane. I mean, you would have bought her the ticket and then she would not have gotten on the plane and she would have cashed the ticket in. She would have had to be a different person for that to work, right? So that becomes a part of it. So you don't, you you don't have regrets. It's not like, oh, if I'd only done this and only done that. If someone's not taking their medication, it doesn't matter what you, might have said or done, right? You have to deal with the person as they were. It's terribly sad, you know, it's terribly sad that she uh, committed suicide, but she was a troubled person.
0: I mean, it's interesting because it's it's moving in the book, but you're also, you're not sentimental about it. And, I mean, some of the funniest lines belong to Tiffany. Because, I because mean, She was she, a
1: very funny person. Was, I mean, if you met her you would think, wow, this person is fantastic, you know, I just want to hear everything she has to say. And after five minutes, you would think, oh, she's never going to stop talking. And then you would be desperate to get away, and she would sense that you were desperate to get away, and then she would attack you. And I think it was partly nerves, Mm the reason that she talked so much. She She was really a difficult person to have a conversation with. Rather, she would just talk at you. But a lot of what she said was really
0: funny. And the similar thing, actually, with your mother, who was hilarious. But you also write more directly about her alcoholism in this book.
1: My mother and my sister were remarkably alike. And I think that was one of the reasons that they didn't get along. But my mother wasn't mentally ill. Tiffany was what my mother could have been if she hadn't been mentally ill.
0: There's one thing that really surprised me in this book and then in real life which is that, you know, if you read all of your earlier work, earlier we pictured you in France sort of having this, you know, nice sort of European pastoral lifestyle, and now in rural England sort of imagine you strolling through the hills. And and there is a bit of that. And, and there was this great—what what animal was it that, that, that came up to you as you were walking at night? A fox. A fox, right, which I loved. So it all seems— sort of like this throwback to an earlier era. And yet, as you sit here, you're wearing a Fitbit and an Apple Watch, which I just somehow didn't predict. But the Fitbit and the, and the garbage collecting and the walking are kind of all tied
1: together. It, well, the Fitbit feeds perfectly into my own mental illness. It was made for me. I meet so many people when I'm signing books, and I say, oh, you have a Fitbit. And they say, oh, my God, I'm obsessed and i say where are you now and they'll say 3000 steps well the minimum's 10000 now and it's and this is it's like 11:15 at night and i wouldn't be i wouldn't be there if i were them i mean i would not go to a show if i had only 3000 steps under my belt i would not do that so they're not you really would not even obsessed. go out in public I would well, I would be walking. Right. I have a friend named Dawn and who she was one of the one of the first people I know who got a Fitbit and she's like me. So she came to England last summer and we walked with 91,000 steps in a day. We started at midnight so we walked 43 <laughs> miles in a day. And we can talk about that anytime anywhere. Always happy to revisit revisit that, and then we're going to go out and walk 100,000 steps. You've got to break the record. But, I mean, I get to the airport, you know, sometimes I look at my schedule and I think, gosh, they have me going to the airport pretty early. And I thought, well, I'll just walk at the airport. But if I have heavy carry-ons, what I do is I check in for my flight, then I go to the parking deck, and I kind of hide my stuff in the parking deck, and then I walk like a crazy person. And this works in with the garbage collecting, right? When I'm at home, I walk between 15 and 22 miles a day. And I pick up garbage while I walk, and I've picked up so much garbage that my local council named a garbage truck after me, and I got invited to Buckingham Palace just simply based on all the trash that I've picked up.
0: What happened when you went to when you got to Buckingham Palace for this occasion?
1: Well, it's funny. I was looking for things for the second diary book, and uh, the Eurostar used to go to Waterloo Station, and I was coming from Waterloo in London. And I saw all these people dressed in finery outside the gates of Buckingham Palace. And I said to the cab driver, I said, who are they? And he said, oh, they're do-gooders. You know, uh, queen's having a garden party. I said, what do you have to do to get invited? He said, dedicate your life to service. And that's the day that I got who invited. Who answered that question? Cab driver. That's, a, that's amazing. It's a nice phrase, isn't it? Dedicate your life to service. So the queen has a garden party every summer and she invites do-gooders of different stripes. And so... I went on that day, and I didn't know anybody except Hugh, And but everybody was wearing new shoes, and there was a little, it, it was held in the garden, but there was a little area away from everything where people would go <laughs> and take their shoes and socks off <laughs> and walk on the grass, just so relieved to have their new shoes off, and blood all over that grass from people's feet.
0: So you haven't gotten that kind of like the Dame Judi Dench thing of like being knighted for your achievements in arts and letters at-
1: Buckingham but no but just for the I mean I have a a radio program in England on the BBC it had nothing to do with that nothing to do with my books all it was about was picking up trash and I was so proud
0: do you feel like I, I mean I almost feel like it should remain that way not to deny you another honor
1: well my local paper in England when they named the garbage truck after me they wrote an article that said you know local man has garbage truck named after him and then people wrote in and said, "Do you know who that is?" And they revised the article. And I thought, "Well, what, what, no. I mean, there was no need to revise it. That's not. It doesn't matter what I do. I mean, it doesn't matter what my job is.
0: This is your vocation. Yeah. Your it's my. Column. Well, it's
1: my. I, I don't know. It's my hobby, I guess. But it fits in perfectly with with the walking. I, I'm just. A, I've always been like an obsessive person that way, but." As I got older, I was able to harness it for good. You know, I was be instead of it being destructive, obsessive behavior. Hugh would argue that this is not that this is destructive. You know, I mean, I was out. I can't stop.
0: That the walking is destructive.
1: Yeah, and the picking up trash. The police stopped me. I was on a busy two lane road. But see, if you go out at one o'clock in the morning, is not busy. There's an area with no verge, and so car. A, I saw a car coming, and I pressed myself against this hedge, and it was the police. And there I was, pressed flat against with my face in a hedge. You and didn't look innocent. Are you all right, sir? And I said, yeah, I'm great. <laughs> they said, is this really the time to be out, picking up rubbish? And I said, it's actually it's perfect time. I said, you know, there's hardly any traffic, and uh, it's a great time. I said, okay, and drove on. Did they know you? I don't know. They must have seen me. I know the poli- I know they've seen me because, I mean, I'm just I'm out there all the time.
0: Okay, so I have to ask, you're, you've, you're done with your lecture tour. You're heading back to England. Does it produce any anxiety to think of all the garbage that has been not picked up for the duration?
1: I have a friend who works for the council, he used to work for the council, and then he ran for office, and now he is a district counselor. And he and I go, he joins me sometime, pick up trash. And, and you got to hand it to a politician who will get out there, and, you know, he actually does something mm-hmm. about it himself. And so he always writes and says, when are you coming back to town? And then he sa- he, he cleans the route from the train station to my house so I won't have to see trash from the train station to my house.
0: Just have that last, was, like, stretch of peace before yeah. you have to turn to the work ahead.
1: But, I mean, all hell's broken loose since I've been gone. I mean, I know that. When I leave the, the route, you know, from the train station to my house, when I walk, let's say, to the grocery store, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have my work cut out for me. But I'm almost looking forward to it in a way. And and I wonder if people think, like, where where was he? <laughs> Where's that guy been? Well, and I feel they, and like- they must think I'm... You know, well, I know they they think I'm crazy. But then I, I guess I don't care, really.
0: Well, I, I feel like I, I shouldn't keep you here any longer. I should let you get back to that landscape. So, David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. David Sedaris' new collection is Calypso, and it's reviewed this week on our cover by Alan Cumming. Joining us now is Elisa Roth, author of Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. Elisa is a former staff reporter for Marketplace and a frequent contributor to various NPR programs. Elisa, thanks for being here.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: So this is your first book. Did this come out of reporting that you've done for NPR? I did
4: do a lot of reporting for, for public radio along the way, looking at mostly the the solutions that different communities are trying as a way to deal with this problem.
0: So you were looking at sort of the criminal justice system overall or specifically at the mentally ill? I had been doing a lot of reporting on the criminal
4: justice system. And realized that there was this whole piece of it that we weren't talking about. So we talk about the race issue. We talk about the the poverty issue. And we weren't really talking about the the mental illness issue. I was lucky enough to get a Soros Justice Fellowship Mm -hmm. to do some sustained reporting on this. And I started traveling around the country talking to different cities and counties and states. And realized that I was seeing the same problems over and over and over again. But in different places. And so this was I realized that this was really a national crisis that was just playing out at a very local level.
0: First, I want to just give some statistics because they are so harrowing. One in four fatal police shootings involves a person with mental illness. The country's three largest providers of mental health care are not hospitals, but jails. As many as half the people in U.S. jails and prisons have a psychiatric disorder. I think there's another one in the book. About 75 percent of women in prisons have some kind of mental health problem.
4: That's right. It's actually the the rate of mental illness among incarcerated women is actually a lot higher than the rate of mental illness among incarcerated men, even though the absolute number of incarcerated men is much higher than.
0: All right. Well, this is diving into some specifics. But why is that? Why the gender disparity?
4: There are a lot of reasons. Among them, women who are incarcerated tend to have complicated histories of trauma, sexual trauma, physical abuse, relationship issues. And then there are issues related to incarceration that really affect mental health. So, in the case of women, many of them are the primary providers of childcare, they're mm-hmm. the primary parent of a child. So, when they get locked up, they're leaving behind. Kids, which of course adds to the the mental
0: stress. Right. All right. So we've been looking at the problem of um, criminal justice in this country for a while, and the problems seem multifold. Obviously, there's just the mass incarceration and in general. There's the huge racial disparities. There's privatization. Is this issue of how the mental health, how the mentally ill, are treated by our criminal justice system? related to those issues? Is it all intertwined? Or is this something that's sort of a whole other issue that we just haven't looked at?
4: This is really the the crisis of mental illness in the criminal justice system. So I'm gonna do that again. Um, The crisis of mental illness in the criminal justice system is really a piece of this larger story of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that we have so many people with mental illness who end up in jail and prison is that we're just locking up a very, very large number of people in this country.
0: I mean, what are those numbers? Something like
4: 50% of the people in jail and prison have a mental illness.
0: And what like what are those what are the actual numbers?
4: At Rikers, I think the number is 43 percent and Mm -hmm. something like 11 percent have what's deemed a serious mental illness. Um, Other places, it goes above 50 percent. Part of the challenge in figuring all this out is that, as you know, the criminal justice system is a really – we talk about it as this single entity. But in reality, it's a series of – very small. You know, it's a county system. It's a state system. And so the way that New York City defines mental illness may not be the same way that Chicago defines mental illness.
0: But you in your book show that this really goes way back to the founding of the country. What I mean, how were the mentally ill treated in the colonial era and the early um, era of uh, years of the republic? And sort of what were what was the policy back then? How did it all get started, essentially?
4: As you say, this goes back really to before our founding as mm-hmm. a country. So you can go back to Virginia when it was still a colony and the governor went before the, you know, what would become the legislature asking for money to build a dedicated psychiatric hospital. And he said something to the effect of every day I end up locking people in jail unlawfully, Because I don't have any place else to house them or to put them. Um, Benjamin Franklin similarly went uh, before the legislature in Pennsylvania and said he wanted to build a a unit in the hospital there for people with mental illness and said we have all these people walking around um, with mental illness who are terrorizing our citizens, and we need a place to to care for them.
0: So where did it go from there? I mean, you would think that at a certain point, something would have changed. I mean, is this one of those situations where it's gotten better and then worse and sort of is it ebbed and flow? Or has this just been a steadily sort of worsening situation in terms of how we treat our mentally ill?
4: I would say that it's a steadily consistent situation. Mm -hmm. And so we, I would argue that Today, it's worse because we are housing people and warehousing people in jails and prisons, which are explicitly places of punishment and confinement for the sake of punishment, as opposed to ostensibly treatment facilities. So if we back up to the colonial times, Mm -hmm. we built in Virginia, this first psychiatric hospital in Pennsylvania, the first regular hospital with what was effectively a psychiatric unit and kind of went along like that. And but we still were were putting tons of people in jail and prison because that was the, the sort of simple solution in some cases. In the 1800s, there were people just ended there was there was nowhere else to put them it right. was it was you ended up in the poorhouse or in jail and that was when people like Dorothea Dix came in and saw lots and lots of people with really clear severe mental illness in jail when She's, was this in the 1850s so she said, this is outrageous. We can't do this. This is wrong. And what's astonishing is when you go back and look at the speeches that she made when she traveled all around the country talking to to legislators, saying, we need to do something. We need to build dedicated facilities that will treat these people rather than just confine them in a basement. But what's astonishing is when you go back and read those speeches that she gave to all these legislatures, apart from the flowery 19th century language, what She's saying what she's reporting hearing from sheriffs and from families and from police is really very similar to what I'm hearing today. So, sheriffs saying we're not equipped to handle this, but we can't turn people away, we're the place of last resort, right? So, she got states to build this system of state hospitals and asylums, which in principle, were an amazing thing. It's like, let's build. I mean, they were asylum in the very literal sense of a place of respite. So let's build places that are therapeutic, someplace that people can live a sort of calm life, get some treatment. And as you know, a lot of them were really like sort of self-contained cities almost. They had farms. They had, in some cases, factories. They had Restaurants, they had all kinds of sort of infrastructure for the people who were living there. But what happened very quickly is that they got very crowded. Mm-hmm. And as they got more crowded and as the sort of interest in this therapeutic idea disappeared, they they really deteriorated into what we think of as asylum. So sort of the one floor over the cuckoo's nest right. image.
0: So it sounds like you have here sort of the nexus of four fairly broken systems the 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 court system and sort of the way that we handle criminals and the sentencing the prison system itself our healthcare system and then our mental health care system i think
4: that's right and i think one of the things that we've come to realize is that first of all the the mental health care system we've always had this sort of false designation that it's a separate thing from the healthcare system and so, so I think people are coming to realize that we need to really put those together. These two things go together. And then there's this idea that we have the criminal justice system, which is separate from this mm-hmm. mental health care system. But really, at least in terms of the patients, they're the same people going back and forth. So the people who are being treated on Rikers are the same people who are often to be, being treated at Bellevue next week when they get out.
0: Is there actually a systemic way for governments to kind of track this to know that you know the, the that these people are sort of cycling in and out of these two systems or is it like they don't actually really talk to one another? For
4: the most part they actually don't talk to one another, which is astonishing when you think about it from a medical point of view. As a doctor, you want to know where this person has been treated, what they've gotten, what's worked, what hasn't. And this is especially true with something like mental illness, where the treatment isn't necessarily so obvious. You know, if somebody's diabetic, you can sort of figure out it's a matter of adjusting the insulin dose or whatever it is. With mental illness, the, the medication, some work, some don't, some work for a while and then stop working. So having that history is really critical. And in most places, we don't have a way to track it. So I talked to the psychologists at a big county jail who, and I asked them that very question, do you know, they said, oh, we're getting tons of people coming in out of the the community healthcare system, especially Mm -hmm. as clinics have been closing down. I said, well, do you know when they're coming in? What's happening? They said, well, we just recently got a system so we can see that they had been treated in that system. Hmm. And I said, well, can you see what the treatment was? And they said, no, no, we can't do that. We just know they've been in that system.
0: And why can't they do that? I mean, is it privacy? Why is this information not shared across institutions?
4: Privacy is part of it, although I think that there's a big misunderstanding of what HIPAA really means, and I think that sometimes the systems hide behind this HIPAA issue as a way not to deal with it. It's a hassle if you've ever tried to get medical records, even from regular private doctors. <laughs> Just to get your
0: own medical records is a is a serious uh, undertaking.
4: Exactly. So to get it from somebody who has no fixed address, who maybe doesn't know exactly where he's been treated, or maybe it's been in a bunch of different cities, it's a challenge
0: people talk about as one of the sort of unintended consequences of Reagan's deinstitutionalization of the public mental health care institutions that 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 led to the homelessness issue but it sounds like is that that that's not unrelated to this as well and that we no longer have Another place for these people to go that's sort of state supported and funded?
4: I mean, part of it is that we've never really had a place for people to go. Mm -hmm. So even if you look back at the mid, you know, the 1950s, which is the height of institutionalization in this country, there were a large number of people who were being treated, living at home and being treated in the community or not getting treatment in the community, but they were never in an institution. But when we started closing down those institutions, those state hospitals then disappeared. So what Reagan did was sort of a a chain in this in this long set of, of steps, but there were but but shutting down the institutions wasn't that exact moment. I mean, we have this story that we like to tell about you know we shut the the one floor of the Cuckoo's Nest Asylums and suddenly everybody's in jail or prison. Right. But when you look at who was In those institutions, they were largely older, white, female, and had diagnoses of schizophrenia. Hmm. And when we look at the jail and prison population, obviously, it's largely young, male, not white. And in terms of diagnoses, it's a much broader—it really reflects much more what we see in the the real community. So this sense that we just literally transplanted people is not— the whole story.
0: but what are some of the sort of most common diagnoses that you might see in a prison population?
4: It really runs the gamut. It's just that we're seeing it in higher percentages than we mm-hmm. see in in real life, but schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, PTSD, which some jurisdictions count as mental illness and some don't, but it's a real issue. And then you can sort of move down to the quote unquote, less serious, you know, anxiety, Less serious depression, things like that.
0: All right. So all this there's a huge number of mentally ill people in prison. This is coinciding with the kind of vast privatization of prisons and also a real, it seems, shift away from a kind of rehabilitation strategy with prisons toward a more penalizing retribution kind of model. I imagine that these prisons are not devoting a lot of resources to treatment, but tell us what that actually looks like for patients who are incarcerated. So as you may know, the prisoners in jail and prison are the only
4: group in the United States who have a constitutional right to health care. And that includes mental health care. So any jail or prison that's crazy.
0: (laughs) Sorry, to to use an inappropriate term or perhaps appropriate term.
4: It's, I mean, you can look at it both ways. It's ridiculous that we don't all have a constitutional right right to health care the logic on that on the the jail and prison side is that those people are confined in this place they're dependent on the jail or prison for everything so food shelter all those things and healthcare fits into that the treatment that you see really varies a lot in some places the healthcare providers in the jails and prisons have really taken on this mandate they say this You know, we didn't sign up for this. We didn't, this is not an appropriate place to do it. But we've got these people
0: and we're going to treat them the best that we can. So, is there, I mean, there's no mechanism for them to say, hey, this person is seriously schizophrenic. This is not the right place for them, right? Once somebody is in prison,
4: Mm -hmm. it's very hard to argue that and get them out. There is some room before somebody is convicted and sent to prison for somebody to say, hey, this is absolutely inappropriate. We need to divert them. So you see the program in Miami, for example, if somebody is arrested on a misdemeanor who has mental illness, they will be offered the option to divert out of the system, be put into treatment and skip the whole jail prison.
0: So give us an example of kind of how this plays out because you traveled around the country. You met with or saw the treatment of, of many people, heard their stories. Give us an example of, of what mental health care looks like in a prison today. On the positive side,
4: you have stuff like what you see at Rikers. Rikers is a terrible place and has many, many problems, but they have been doing some stuff right on the mental health care side. And I
0: was going to say on the positive side, Rikers is not a lot of you know, and not a phrase that you hear very often.
4: They have built a number of units that are really designed to mimic psychiatric units that you would see in a hospital in the community. Mm -hmm. And so these are small units. They have consistent medical staffing, consistent security staffing, lots of programming. So lots of therapy activities, one-on-one therapy, art therapy, and just things to do. One of the problems you see is, is people stuck in jail or prison with nothing to do, which even if you're not mentally ill, even if you don't have a mental illness, that's a real
0: problem. I mean, what about medication? Are these people being sort of properly medicated? Is there over-medication and correct medication? How does that work?
4: We do see a lot of Mm over-medication, as we saw in the institutions back in the day. Although medication is expensive, it's sort of a cheap and easy way to control a lot of people who – may otherwise need a more elaborate treatment in terms of therapy and and other things. In other places, though, you see really under-medication, one of the big problems is under-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so in Alabama, where the system was recently sued for its treatment of prisoners with mental illness, you look at the percentages of people identified with mental illness and they're orders of magnitude lower than almost any other system in the country. And so there are two choices, right? Either Alabama has way fewer people with mental illness or they're not identifying them. And in in the case of Alabama, it was, in fact, the, the latter. And so a lot of people simply weren't getting treatment. Is the funding there to really address this? It's not, but I think one of the things that happens when, you, when you're when you sued in a federal lawsuit is that you have to find the funding. Right. One of the interesting things was that at least early on in that case, the state came back and said, okay, okay, we're going to come up with funding to build some new prisons. And it really becomes this question, like, is this the answer? Like, do we need to get people out of the system or do we just need to build a better system?
0: How does the privatization affect this? I mean, if you are a private prison and you're... Operating on a for profit model where you've got to lower your costs to maximize your profits. I mean, is it profitable to treat these people adequately, or is it more profitable perhaps to just find some kind of cheaper solution?
4: So we should separate here. There's the issue of private prisons. Mm-hmm but the actual number of prisoners who are held in private prisons is a very small percentage of the overall, and they're mostly in the federal system. So most of the people that I'm talking about are in the state systems. Mm -hmm. And where you see the privatization issue come in is on a contractor basis. So you'll have a state-run prison, but they'll contract out to a private healthcare provider to come in and provide healthcare, mental healthcare, the same way they, they contract with people to provide the food, let's say, or even the prescription services and it's an extreme version of what you see in the outside world that these companies want to make money so it's it's not unlike your your doc you know your pharmacy may say your 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 uh, insurance will cover this medication but not that one but certainly the companies have to find a way to work within the state budget so in Alabama what you saw is that that you ended up with far too few healthcare providers in place for the number of people who needed treatment. Mm-hmm. Or you you find people who are just not as qualified. So instead of having a whole bunch of psychiatrists and PhD level psychologists, you get a bunch of these like very low level healthcare providers who are filling in in jobs that are quite literally above their pay grade.
0: right? And I would imagine, too, for the rest of the people who work in the prison, whether it's in the cafeteria or as guards, that it, they're not necessarily well-trained or equipped to handle prisoners who might be under-medicated, over-medicated, or undiagnosed.
4: In most cases, the corrections officers end up being the first-line responders. They're the ones who are having the day-to-day contact with the prisoners. And in most cases, they receive little or no training in how to recognize mental illness, how to respond to it, how to de-escalate a situation rather than than amp it up, because the the sort of traditional training, such as it is for corrections officers, is much like what we see with law enforcement. So if somebody's misbehaving, you're going to keep ratcheting it up until that person responds the way you want them to, whereas for a person with mental illness, he may not be able to respond the way you want him to, or he may be so afraid that he's going to respond the wrong way. We are seeing more states and counties that are realizing that this is an issue and, and providing some training to corrections officers, but by and large, they are not equipped to to do this job that we've asked them to
0: do. So earlier on, you, you sort of showed the sort of positive scenario at Rikers tell us just on an individual level some of the stories of the people who are really on that negative <laughs> end of the spectrum and and what that what that what life is like for them in prison
4: so if we go back to Alabama there's a young man that I write about named Jamie Wallace who was in his early 20s by the time he got into prison. And he had been diagnosed very, very early as a five or six-year-old. He had been diagnosed with mental illness, had been getting treatment on and off, had spent a couple of years in jail while his trial was his, – or his case was proceeding. He never went to trial. And they knew about the mental illness there. he He got some treatment in jail, but he went to prison, and the way he described it the the mental health care provider would come by every couple of weeks bang on his cell door and say hey how you doing and that was the the extent of his his treatment for the most part when he got to get out to see a clinician he would be handcuffed taken upstairs and and the way he described it again it was you know 5 to 10 minute sessions with a with a clinician i've talked to people through those cell doors and it's hard to hear it's hard to be heard the doors are thick mm-hmm. often you can, the glass is so scratched up that you can't exactly make eye contact with the person and you're on a on a row with a whole bunch of other people so you're not going to be wanting to divulge your deepest darkest secrets to right. somebody i mean in his case he also ended up in solitary confinement because that was how Alabama dealt with the most severely ill people was to put them in cells by themselves. And he he ended up spending most of his time locked in this tiny little room alone.
0: There was a story in the book, too, of a, someone in, in Virginia, mentally ill, arrested for stealing $5 worth of junk food. What happened to him?
4: Jermichael Mitchell had also had a long history of mental illness. I think he had schizophrenia. He got picked up robbing junk food from a convenience store. They took him to jail. Mm -hmm. And according to his family, he didn't receive his medication. He didn't receive food. The officers taunted him. And he eventually died of of starvation in this jail.
0: How does this work in other countries? I mean, how do other countries handle the, you know, these sort of very different needs of treating the sort of sickest among us and having a kind of criminal justice or reform system? We lock up far more people than any other country.
4: Our next closest contender is way, 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 way behind us. It's shocking. I mean, you look at the graph and it's like this long and then the next number is
3: half as many people. It's like that gun graph.
4: Yes, exactly. It's exactly like that. Totally unrelated. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's the starting point. There are far fewer people locked up, which means they're also locking up far fewer people with mental illness. But if you also have health care, you don't have as many people with untreated mental illness. So I visit a prison in Norway. I know that Norway does everything <laughs> you better. Never
0: go to Scandinavia <laughs> if you're looking to
4: feel better about America. <laughs> right? They do do everything better. But one of the questions I asked the psychologist in the jail, actually, first of all, the psychologist's office looked like any doctor's office you would go anywhere. They had magazines to read while you wait. They had a bowl of fruit if you wanted to eat something while you wait. And because the prisoners had freedom of movement they could walk themselves to the appointments instead of like here where most places you have to be accompanied by corrections officers, which as an aside, when you have a shortage of corrections officers, which is really common in a lot of places, people end up missing appointments because Hmm. they simply don't have somebody, they don't have a way to get to the appointment. So I asked the psychologist in in Norway do you how often do you see people who come in to prison with and and get a first diagnosis of mental illness there because it's not uncommon here that that you know the family might know that something's wrong but that the first time that somebody's actually been treated or can treated in a consistent way is in a jail or prison when when the system is is required
0: exactly to actually do it
4: exactly and when somebody identifies it and does something about it mm-hmm. and she said Almost never. She so said the only time she sees it is when people have had an addiction problem, a very severe addiction problem for so long that they've basically been living off the grid, mm-hmm. but that anybody who's come through the, the national healthcare system, they have a record of it and they can access that record. So they can go in and say, oh, this person had a breakdown when he was 25. We used this and this and it worked. We used this and this and it didn't work. And the person can also then be sent once they're released from prison can go back to the clinic and have that connection again which is something that's missing here when somebody's let out if you're lucky you're referred to to a doctor or to a clinic but the mechanics of that are so complicated that often people just fall out of the system again once they get out of jail or prison.
0: So realistically, other than sort of transforming our country into a very large version of Norway, what could we do better? I mean, what are like the realistic steps under our current kind of overall system of, of health care and criminal justice? Is there a way that 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 we can deal with the problem better?
4: I think arresting fewer people will be a great place to start. A lot of cities and counties are now training police officers to identify people with mental illness and to know how to respond and and to find places that when a police officer encounters somebody who's clearly sick regardless of what they've done that that would be arrest-worthy to take them to a hospital or to a clinic instead of to jail. Jail is often the quick and easy solution from the officer's point of view. Right, but it put them away. Put them away. You're done. You take them in. There's a, a clear sort of mechanism for mm-hmm. dropping somebody off. If you take somebody to the emergency room, particularly to a busy public emergency room— you could be sitting there for hours and nobody – like the officers don't want that. Their supervisors don't want that. The emergency rooms don't necessarily want that. So having a designated place – San Antonio has done a really good job. They're sort of the the perfect example of the, the – best example of this is creating a place for officers to hand off that we have this mechanism that they're there for 10 or 15 minutes. They do the handoff and they're back on the streets. I have mixed feelings about this, but I think that improving the the medical care in the jails and prisons is critical, especially when you look at a place like Alabama, but lots of places where there's just not enough treatment. Why the mixed feelings? Because I think when you don't have the system in place in the community, it becomes a very tempting and not illogical solution for the attorneys, the cops, the judges to say, Put them in jail. You get what they call three hots in a cot. They're going to be safe. The community will be safe.
0: Right, because it could lead to over-imprisonment.
4: Yeah, it just becomes the—it it makes jail the the convenient solution and not—
0: You were passed to healthcare.
4: Yes, exactly. I mean, that shouldn't be the case. But I was talking to a psychiatrist in Georgia who said that especially in the case of kids— The quickest way to get them into health care is to get them into the criminal justice system.
0: Wow, that is terrifying. It is. There's another book in there. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, Elisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. The book again is called Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness by Elisa Roth. Alexander Alter joins us now to talk about
5: the literary world. Hi there. Hi. What is new this week? Well, of course, the most enormous earth shattering news was the death of Philip Roth, um, which everyone responded to on social media. There was a huge outpouring, and I know you'll be talking about his work and legacy on the podcast in the future, so I won't belabor appreciations of him, but it really was a big moment for the literary world, and you could see what an influence he's had on so many writers, not just the usual suspects, but even crime writers like Lisa Scattolini. She studied with him, and her next book is apparently kind of inspired by by him in some ways, so that that was interesting to see. You know, beyond that, we're still seeing political books kind of dominating the conversation and driving all the sales in the industry. And it's not just the Trump books that we've seen on the hardcover bestseller list. We still have books like A Higher Loyalty by James Comey is is still number three. John Meacham's The Soul of America jumped on there. There is Madeleine Albright's fascism is on the list. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously something that's preoccupying readers. And the bestseller list is like divided. It's just true. like our politics. Exactly.
0: <laughs> because we also have Jonah Goldberg on there. Yeah.
5: Um, you can really see kind of partisan sensibilities playing out on the bestseller list. And this week there was kind of a rash of, of news about upcoming Obama books. So even though the Trump books are dominating cable news headlines and the bestseller list right now, there is a wave of Obama books coming. Of course, the biggest of all that people are anticipating right now, is Michelle Obama's memoir, which is coming out this fall. And she released her cover this week on Instagram. People were very excited about that. And she released a few previously unseen family photos. So that created quite a stir. And then there was an announcement that the White House photographer Pete Souza, who published a bestseller last year, will be doing a follow-up to that. He did this beautiful visual book about covering the Obama White House. Mm -hmm. And after that, he, on his Instagram feed, kind of started this not so veiled commentary on the current political landscape, he would post a, a photo of Obama that would sort of stand as a contrast to what's going on today with the Trump administration. And that has turned into a second book deal. Bookstagram. Books <laughs> exactly. More powerful than Vacation Instagram. Exactly. So that was just announced this week, and it's already on the Amazon bestseller list. The title is Shade, A Tale of Two Presidents, Not Too Subtle, and it will be coming out this fall right before the midterm elections. Pete Souza has been touring the country, you know, doing slideshows and meeting with audiences, and he's become quite the celebrity, which is kind of interesting for a White House photographer to turn into a bestselling author. So
0: his book comes out before Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, which is released on November 13th? Exactly. Got it. I think everyone else is kind of clearing out the November I think in anticipation. The entire
5: month is blacked off for Michelle Obama. <laughs> and another another book that's coming out from the Obama White House. It's coming up this summer in July is From The Corner of the Oval. It's a memoir by Beck Dorey Stein and it's being published by Spiegel and Grau. And she is a stenographer in the White House, and in her twenties, she sort of was going through everything you go through in your twenties, but from this incredibly fascinating front row seat to to the White House. So her memoir has already been optioned for film and it's gotten a lot of pre-buzz. So there's another one coming.
0: And next week we have Ben Rhodes' memoir coming out.
5: Oh, that's right. Exactly. So more to come. And then another one coming out in June is, is Dan Pfeiffer's Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter and Trump. And Dan Pfeiffer is a former communications director for the Obama administration. And people are familiar with him from the podcast Pod Save America, of course. Oh, and I should mention one of the most anticipated and sort of surprising political books that's coming up this summer is a book that is co-authored by James Patterson and former President Bill Clinton called The President is Missing. And this is a thriller that has been kept heavily under wraps, at least the plot of it has. So it'll be interesting to see um, how they collaborate. And that's on June 5th. Exactly. On a related note, there are a couple of other really interesting political books that have been announced recently. One is Never Again, Reporting from the School that Inspired the Nation. That was announced this week. This is by students who survived the shooting at Marjorie Marjory and Douglas High School, and it's edited by some of their journalism professors. And these are first-person accounts from the students and researched and reported articles from the students. And I thought it was fascinating to see, you know, in, after previous public shootings, we've seen journalists kind of swoop in and tell the story. And in this case, it's coming from the students' own words. And I think that is something that has made this movement really powerful. They've been out there, you know, sort of advocating for themselves just because I think they're a little bit older and they're able to speak to those issues. Another book, again, by students from Marjory and Douglas, is Never Again, A New Generation Draws the Line. That's coming out in June, and that's by David Hogg and Lauren Hogg. There was a really dramatic moment this week at the Pan America Gala, which
0: honored Stephen King, among others. Uh, Margaret Atwood was there, Morgan Freeman— Introduced Stephen King, um, and you know they talked about press freedom and about the importance of books. But I think the most moving moment of all came when several of the Parkland students were honored, and uh, one of them, a young woman named Samantha Fuentes, who was shot wow. and survived at Parkland, she got up to the podium. This is like a black tie gala affair at the Museum of Natural History in New York. And she was telling her story when she on stage threw up from emotion and uh, it was very dramatic. She ran off and then later on she came back to a standing ovation. She gathered herself and she spoke out and it was just an incredibly powerful moment there. So it's it'll be interesting to hear more from the parkland survivors
5: absolutely and to see what kind of impact these books have i mean we've seen you know in the past books like columbine which have been written more by established journalists and this i think is going to be something from the students who experienced it and directed not just at activists and adult readers but at their peers so i thought it was interesting that you know these are being published by children's imprints as well
0: well, some interesting summer reading, not exactly beach reads necessarily, but I think um, sounds Maybe like very important books. Maybe the Clinton Patterson. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, we've got Tina Jordan, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. All right. It looks like you're reading something big but fun. Tina, tell us. I am reading something big but fun. I've started the new Stephen King, which is called The Outsider. It begins, like a lot of Stephen King novels, kind of innocuously. A murder has occurred. We are— in the witness, you know, in the police interrogation room as they talk to witnesses, we're reading reports, everybody has seen the same man commit this heinous crime. He's an English teacher, he's a little league coach, and yet he seems to have an alibi that is unimpeachable. So this is not going anywhere good. Quick digression. Go around quick and name your favorite Stephen King novel, Tina. Oh, The Stand. Right, uh-uh. <laughs> Coles, <laughs> you have confessed to having read Arrow, oh, I, tons I have of Stephen read King. so
3: much Stephen King. I have a soft spot for Pet Cemetery. Maybe
0: <laughs> it was that S, in the, uh, <laughs> yeah, that back, backwards S. That was like in my brother's bathroom for a really I mean, long time. For, for me, the the
3: thing in Pet Cemetery, I, I don't know if you've read it, but there, there's a shocking moment with a truck and a young child. It's kind of a, a culminating incident. So,
2: all right, John, <laughs> I've never read Stephen King. Oh my God. I have the stand. Heresy. At home. The stand is the thing I kind of one day want to read. It's kind of intimidating.
0: It's on my desert. Its, length. it's on my desert island. The Shining list. Is all one right, of All right, you can send movies. all hate mail this week to John Williams, who has never read Stephen King, never was a teenager, John Williams. Pamela, what is your favorite Stephen King? <laughs> you know, it probably is the stand, I yep. would have to say. Um, uh, you know, that was just, it's It it it's been copied so many, so many times that, you know, now every time you get to some kind of post apocalyptic thing, you're like, oh. <laughs> and, oh and you
3: realize he, he's a master world builder. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, But I
0: think, you know, he accepted um, an award at the PEN Gala earlier this week and talked about the Shawshank Redemption. And I realized, like, I've never sort of read the kind of softer, more Hmm. sentimental, realistic Stephen King. All right, John, what are you reading since you're not reading Stephen King?
2: (laughs) You know, I've read a whole bunch of things uh, recently. (laughs) He says
0: defensively. (laughs)
2: No, because, I, you know, I didn't come on here for a long time because you had me reading so much for work and I'm not allowed to talk about that. That's right. So I, that made John did lost a big time.
0: music roundup in our summer reading issue.
2: Yeah, that's coming out next weekend. So I read Rachel Kushner's The Mars Room. I'm rereading Rachel Cusk's outline in preparation for reading the third book. In that so all trilogy. the Rachel's. All the Rachel's. And then the the sort of weirdest thing I read, it was a ni- an early 1960s novel called The Low Life by a writer named Alexander Barron. And it's about a guy in Britain, post-war Britain, who is, essentially a degenerate gambler. He goes to the dog track all the time and he moves into this house where he shares a flat with this family and kind of has a very charged relationship with the wife who kind of hates him and, it's about his fate. It's a very existential, but very entertaining because of the gambling lingo and all that, which I love. All right. Great. Quick. What's your favorite James Joyce novel?
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's about a month since I last discussed Ulysses on this show. And so I'm pleased and proud to announce that I am at least five pages further in yeah, <laughs> than I was, I was we then. We can see
0: it splayed out here. Not very impressively You've broken the, uh, spine. the time.
3: In fact, I, I've made it probably about 20 pages beyond where I was last time. I, I'm uh, past. Past the long Bloom section um, that I was discussing last time on this show, and um, am, am now back to Stephen Dedalus, and um, it, he—it's this whole kind of conversation about Shakespeare and and his personal life as opposed to his art, and it, it all feels very topical. The the art versus the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because it's it's stream of consciousness but there are times I'm reading it and it's like stream of my consciousness <laughs> it's a, you know that it, it um, is all the same stuff that that we still talk about and think about um today in in terms of um kind of biography versus art you know it's it's hard it's good um it's weird <laughs> um, and it's and I'm, I'm making slow but steady progress i'm i'm about to page
2: 200 now what about you pamela you look like you have something a bit more digestible
0: it is very digestible and timely i am reading Andrew Sean Greer's Less, which just won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. And listeners may recall he was a guest here on the podcast last year when the book came out. It was reviewed on our cover glowingly by Christopher Buckley. And so it's lovely to see him get this recognition. And, you know, this actually is just a really fun book to read. I'm reading something that is, I think, legitimately summer reading. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a book about kind of a, a semi-failed novelist in midlife and sort of the 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 woes of that, but all taken in good fun. And he's a really funny, stylish writer. So I'm only a few pages in, but having a good time.
2: That's great. Great. great.
0: All right. Thanks all. Thanks, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.